We've been going through a, a series of, of um, messages dealing with uh, difficult concepts, you know, the, the, the real gnarly difficult concepts. And the reason we've been doing this is because people have been asking, first of all, I've been getting the questions. But secondly, they're important to go through because each one of them represents an apparent contradiction with God's love. And that's really what we're dealing with. God's love is the cornerstone of Jesus' teaching. You could basically say that Jesus' mission here on earth was to show us the Father and show us the Father's love. And so anything that appears to contradict that, whether it's uh, Old Testament uh, stories or sayings, whether it's predestination that seems to be that God is picking winners and losers and especially picking those losers, um, we need to go through those and see how does that actually resolve, because it does resolve, when we look at the scripture through the Hebrew and Aramaic lens. And the other thing is, is that it these difficult topics, these difficult issues, they challenge our deeply held beliefs. Whether it is a positive or a negative, when something is deeply held and is ingrained, especially since childhood, it is really difficult for us to let go of those beliefs. And so when something comes and challenges that belief, you know, what are you going to do with that? You feel that resistance. You feel that offense. Something is dissonant in there. How do we deal with that? Those are all blockages to our ability to just trust God and move with abandon into the kind of relationship that he calls kingdom. So we've been talking about these things, and especially in terms of challenging these deeply held beliefs. And I've been going back and emphasizing over and over this one scene, which I think is absolutely pivotal, when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and asks what he can do to receive eternal life. And Jesus tells him to sell everything. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And so I've been emphasizing that as this this, uh, image of what it means for us to be able to really follow Jesus, that we really have to empty ourselves of all of these beliefs. I had someone, I had um, really emphasized this last Wednesday, and someone came up to me and asked me afterwards, wanted to know, if you sell everything you have, you know, what do you do without any money? Do you you just join the ranks of the homeless and and hang out then? And so I want to be really clear here that... uh, Even though this saying may have been literal to the person that Jesus was talking to at the moment, what it is really about is cutting our emotional ties with whatever it is that we've been clinging to for so long that it has come to define us. Do you see how that is? Now, this rich young man was identified and defined by his riches, by his position socially, and whatever power that he had. And even though he'd been a good boy and had kept all the rules, he still knew that something was missing. And Jesus says, that something is going to continue to elude you until you let go of this last thing that you're clinging to. Now, it didn't mean that he had to sell everything, you know. He had to cut the emotional tie. Sometimes, that's the only way we can sell everything, is to really physically let it go. But that's not what it means to us. Here, in our context, what it does mean, though, is for us to be honest with ourselves and see what is it that we're still clinging to. Is it some deeply held belief? Is it what we think we know? In which case, are we ready to let it go? Maybe it'll come back to us on the other side of our journey. But we can't start the journey if the pot is already full. 
How are you going to fill something that's already full? Epictetus, a, a first century CE uh, Greek philosopher, said it beautifully when he said, um, let's see if I can find this now. I just had it. It's impossible for a man or a woman to learn what he thinks he already knows. <laughs> think about that for a second. Put that one on your fridge. It's impossible for you to learn something you think you already know. The goal here is to keep selling Keep stripping away. Keep shedding everything that we think we know, everything that is a deeply held belief, everything that makes us comfortable, that is familiar, and is therefore limiting us from the next thing that Jesus is showing us. Because I guarantee you the next thing that Jesus is showing you is going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be unfamiliar. It's going to be disorienting. By definition, if it's new, it's disturbing, right? That's the way we run across every, everything is a threat until it's proven not to be. And so the next thing that Jesus is bringing to us, the next thing the Father is showing us is going to appear as a threat. And if we aren't willing to continue the cycle of letting go of what we think we know, then we're not going to be able to go where Jesus is trying to take us. There's a great article by um, a businessman, a hedge fund manager, billionaire, right? And I wanted to read a little bit of this to you to see if we can bring this point home. Billionaire Ray Dalio founded Bridgewater, one of the world's largest and best-performing hedge funds. A true entrepreneurial success story, Dalio started his company in a two-bedroom apartment. He was a self-described ordinary kid and worse-than-ordinary student. Forty-two years after starting his company, he reveals the one roadblock to success that is so ingrained in the human experience and in our DNA. That is difficult to overcome. Dalio's advice, be radically open-minded. Good decisions aren't necessarily the ones that stroke your ego. A good decision is what's best for you and your company. To make good decisions, argues Dalio, a person must have the ability to explore different points of view and different possibilities, regardless of whether it hurts your ego. Ask any of your friends or any entrepreneur if he or she is open-minded. And most, if not all, yeah, will say they are. But are they? Are you? According to Dalio, here are some cues that will tell you if you are truly open-minded. Let me ask you a question. How upset are you when your ideas are challenged? How upset do you get if someone disagrees with you? Very. (laughs) But think about that. Whenever someone disagrees with you, for whatever it is, how the eggs are supposed to be seasoned in the morning to your political choice for president, anything and everything in between. How upset are you when your ideas are challenged? He writes, closed-minded people don't want their ideas challenged. Open-minded people are not angry when someone disagrees. In other words, they become unoffendable, which is one of the hallmarks in the highest state of Christian being, according to the Desert Fathers. Second, how many questions do you ask of people? Do you ask a lot of questions? Do you have a curiosity to know? Think about it. How many questions do you really ask? If you're in a conversation, are you the one asking the questions? Are you playing the reporter, the journalist? He writes, closed-minded people are more likely to make statements than ask questions. Open-minded people genuinely believe they could be wrong. Wow, what a concept, right? Another question, how important is making others understand you 
to you? How important is it for you to get your point of view across? How frustrated do you get if you can't seem to get your point across? And are you trying to do it on social media as well as in conversation? How important is it for you to get this across? He writes, close-minded people focus much more on being understood than on understanding others. Open-minded people always feel compelled to see things through others' eyes. Final question. How sure are you that you're right? (laughs) Close-minded people lack a deep sense of humility. Open-minded people approach everything with a sense that they may be wrong. Dalio believes that recognizing these traits in yourself is just the first step. The second step is recognizing them in others. I don't know, that might be the other way around. I think it's probably easier to see it in others before you can see it in yourself. But either way, once you do see it in others, surround yourself with open-minded people, he says. Dalio offers several recommendations to help you develop the habit of being radically open-minded. Among them, sincerely believe that you might not know the best possible path. Dalio says that recognizing what you don't know is more important than whatever it is you know for sure. Recognize that decision-making is a two-step process. First, take in all the relevant information, then decide. People are reluctant to consider information that is inconsistent with their worldview or the conclusion they've already arrived at. Remember that you're looking for the best answer. Not simply the best answer that you can come up with yourself. When two people disagree, there's a good chance that one of them is wrong. What if it's you? If you are too proud of what you know, you will learn less, make inferior decisions, and fall short of your potential. You know, I love when other disciplines come to the same conclusion that Scripture does. You know, whether it's business or science. You know, truth is truth. And I love to hear it from other facets, other people, and and especially from other disciplines, and see how everything comes together. You know, this is right out of the Beatitudes. The first Beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Who are the poor in spirit? You know, not those who are lacking in spiritual gifts, those who have that attitude of poverty, even if they're rich, those who can admit that they're wrong, those who don't see anyone as greater or less than themselves, straight across. That is like ground zero for living in Jesus' kingdom, ground zero for following Jesus. And it's the same thing that he's saying here about being open-minded. And this is the approach that we always take at the effect. We're always trying to let you know we're providing you the best that we can, what we're convinced of and what we've corroborated in our study. But it could be wrong. Everything I told you, maybe you can just forget all about it. It could be wrong. You know? But you find that out for yourself. What works for you? Take what you need, leave the rest. But this is our attempt to just get into a process with each other that's absolutely essential for spiritual growth, absolutely essential as setting the foundation for following Jesus. And now what I wanted to do was apply this to Lent because, can you believe it? Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. I, it's just like, what in the world happened? You know, where did, where did I feel like we just finished Easter. So Easter's coming on April 12th. And Lent is here already. And I want to try to see if we can look at Lent in a different way. If we can unlearn and then relearn Lent. How many of you grew up with Lent? You know, as a child? Okay. Some of you in the Catholic Church? 
some of you in Anglican, Episcopal Church, some of you in Methodist and Lutheran, whatever, if you grew up with Lent, then you have a certain probably residual feeling about it, don't you? <laughs> what was your feeling as a child? What was it that, that you uh, experienced as a child? You know, For us, it was uh, finding that favorite thing that we liked and having to give it away, give it up, You know, whether it was a candy bar that we liked or whatever it was. But it was a place and a time, especially the way it was taught to me or the, just the way I took it, of, of, of kind of um, passive inaction. I suppose it's a good way to put it. You know, it was passive. I, I just wasn't doing something, and I wasn't acting in any way. You know, and the focus was always on sin. The focus was on the remorse of my sinfulness. The focus was on becoming worthy enough to have God enter me again, to be worthy enough to enter into Easter. There are all of these things about it. But I'm wondering if there's another way that we can look at Easter, another way to practice, I should say, Lent. Another way to practice, another way to experience Lent that creates a positive, an affirmative action, something that we do rather than this negative. And so let's start at the beginning. What do we really know about Lent? Where does the word even come from? Why do we call it Lent? Anyone know that one? There's an old English word called Lincoln. L-E-N-C-T-E-N. And it simply means the spring season. And so Lent always comes in the spring season. And so it was a name that was applied to this period. And it's mentioned in the literature as early as the second century. So we're talking about the middle of the 100s. Is, is Lent goes back that far. And it's well established by the 4th century. It was moved to actually start on Wednesday, always on Wednesday, in the 7th century by Pope Gregory. He moved it and put it there. And it was the idea of it originally was to have a 40-day preparation for Easter. Here's that 40 days. We'll talk about that. You know, what, what is the significance of 40 days? It was meant to mirror Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. But here's the kicker. If you count from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday, you don't get 40 days. You get 46 days. Well, what the heck? I mean, it's supposed to be 40 days, you know, messing with me. They don't count the Sundays because the Sundays weren't fast days. And so those six Sundays don't count. So every other day that you were fasting, that you were practicing Lent, was 40. And so this season of Lent actually takes up a whole quarter of the liturgical year. It's huge. Between Lent and Easter and all the way to Pentecost is a quarter of the full year. And so it's the predominant season. And actually in the ancient church, Easter was the primary focus. Not Christmas, but Easter. Christmas came later and, and built up over time. It really took several centuries for that to happen. But Easter was huge in the church. And so it starts this week. And actually it starts, the festivities at least start on Tuesday. Tuesday is called Shrove Tuesday. In the, uh, in the Old English. And Shrive means to, to absolve, all right? So on Shrive Tuesday or Shrove Tuesday, confession would be heard and penances would be assigned as early as a thousand years ago this was taking place. And I've told you before how much I love liturgy because it binds people together culturally in a way that nothing else does. And since we're losing our liturgy and losing our common culture, especially in terms of our Judeo-Christian traditions, uh, it, we're finding ourselves more and more fractured. But for millennia, these practices have been in place. And I find that just fascinating. The people called Shrive Tuesday Pancake Day. 
<laughs> or Fat Tuesday. And if you put that into French, you get Mardi Gras. That's something I'm sure that you've all heard of. And so the idea of Shrive Tuesday, it was a day of self-examination. It was a day when you really looked at the wrongs that you needed to repent, areas of growth that you needed to move into, and a time of asking for God's help to prepare you for the new life, for the resurrection that was Easter. And so every Tuesday, a bell would ring from the church between 11 and 12 noon, 11 a.m. and 12 noon, which would be a call to confession. As early as 1600, this was called the pancake bell. <laughs> because it was a, a reminder to use up all the fatty foods that you weren't going to be able to eat during Lent. You know, your milk and your eggs and your butter, all that had to go away because it was going to spoil if you didn't eat it all up on Fat Tuesday and be ready for the fast that started on Ash Wednesday. It was this last day to gorge and eat rich foods before Lent started. And often it was a day of real carnival and merrymaking, which is still carried on in New Orleans. And the Mardi Gras, of course, it's become something quite different. But that was the idea. There was a tradition in, in, uh, in, in medieval Christianity, in European Christianity, that there were four pillars uh, of the Christian faith. And they were symbolized by each one of the foods that was being given up during Lent. You had your eggs, which symbolized creation. Makes sense. Eggs, creation, right? Flour was sustenance. Salt was wholesomeness. And milk was purity. And so they saw all these things as part and symbols of the Christian faith that they were offering up during their times, uh, during the time of Lent. There's a story that in the city of Olney, which is in Buckinghamshire, Buckinghamshire, England, in somewhere around 1445 or maybe even earlier, a woman was making her pancakes, trying to do what she's supposed to do, get all the pancakes made, and lost track of time. The bell rang, and she realized she was late for confession. She ran out of the house with still a pancake frying in her pan and flipped it as she was getting to the church. And so this became the beginning of the pancake races, which is a tradition in Olney, from 1445, and they actually have these races, and they're hilarious. Uh, I've seen videos of them where they have, they're basically done in teams, and, and they're like uh, relay races. And so the person starts, they have to wear an apron, and they got their frying pan, and they got a flapjack in it, and they have to run a certain part of the course, flipping the pancakes as they go. And then when they get to the next person, they have to, they have to get the apron on, and they have to get ready, and they run the next leg of the race, and in only it ends at the steps of the church, which reminds that woman who, you know, lost her place. But they take this stuff really seriously. There's some rules about pancake races. I want to read you some of them because they're hilarious. First, gentlemanly and gentlewomanly behavior will be strictly observed at all times. Administrators especially be expected to be on their best behavior and to act as an example to all participants. Number two, frying pans must not be used as weapons or as means of making unseemly gestures. Whatever the depth of provocation or the nature of the person at the root of the provocation. Now, I'm trying to imagine how you use a frying pan to make an unseemly gesture. I don't know, maybe you turn it around or something. I don't know. Number three, any surplus eggs, flour, or butter remaining from the earlier making of pancakes must not be propelled in the direction of other participants or spectators. Number four, the course is over 25 meters, and in that distance, pancakes must be tossed once at least to a minimum height of 30 centimeters. 
And if a participant allows a pancake to fall, he or she must return to the starting line and begin again. Six, members from each team will run in relay, and the pancake, frying pan, and apron must be exchanged intact before the next member of the race can proceed. And finally, the organizers reserve the right to send off violent or unruly participants. You think they're taking this competition a little bit too seriously? I think so. You know, it comes out of the tradition, though, and it's a beautiful thing. And imagine how that binds the community together doing something like that on Shrive Tuesday as preparing for Ash Wednesday. This last day to eat, to make merry before the fast begins. And then there's Ash Wednesday, of course. So Ash Wednesday, the next day, it's the first day of Lent. It's the first day of the fast. In these traditional medieval times, the fast consisted of one meal. You only had one meal a day. And it was eaten during the evening or near the evening. And there was no meat, no fish, and no animal products. Starting to sound like the diet I think a lot of you are already following, right? I know you are, buddy. (laughs) So maybe you're already there, and you're going to have to come up with something else. to. And then, of course, the ashes. The ashes were um, the ancient symbol of desolation, the ancient symbol of mourning. Uh, A mourner would put on sackcloth, you know, something really rough and irritating to the skin, and then heap ashes on his or her head. In this case, liturgically, the ashes were created from the previous year's palm fronds and and branches that were used for Palm Sunday. Those were burned and blessed and saved for the following year. And so then, initially, those ashes were poured on people's heads. Aren't you glad we have evolved since then? And uh, eventually it became the cross just etched on the forehead. And then what was said to the person out of Genesis was, Remember that dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And then after the 60s in Vatican II, in the, uh, in the Catholic Church at least, they started saying out of Matthew 1.15, repent and believe the gospel. And so there's been some evolution in that. But these ashes are the symbol of repentance. They're the dedication of a person to prepare for this new life and where it's going. And Lent was meant to mirror Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness, This time that he spent purging himself of everything that needed to go in order for him to be able to find his true identity and to come back and lead his people. And we've talked about this this symbolism of 40. 40 occurs so much in the Bible. You probably aren't even aware of how much 40 occurs in the Bible. I just captured a few of them. Actually, it appears over 159 times in the Bible, this number 40. And when it's used... Virtually every time it's used, it means something symbolically. If you factor in, each of the integers means something in Hebrew numerology and Hebrew symbolism. And number five is a number of man. It's a number of initiation. um, And sometimes it's understood as a number of grace. And then eight is a number of rebirth. And so five times eight is 40. You factor those together. And what you have in 40 is a time of trial and testing or initiation into rebirth, into new change, new life. And so everywhere you see a 40, think about it. When you're reading the story and it's 40 days, 40 nights, 40 years, 40 something, 40 hours even, this is meant to be not a literal 40, but this time of trial and testing as long as it takes. Refinement until rebirth. Moses spends 40 days on Mount Sinai fasting before he receives the law from God. Moses prays 
for Israel for 40 days. Moses' life is divided into three sets of 40. 40 years as a prince of Egypt, 40 years in the backwater of the Midian as a shepherd, and then 40 years leading his people through the promised land. Goliath taunted Israel for 40 days before David finally defeated him. The spies were sent out into the land of Canaan when they got there at the beginning of the Exodus. And they spent 40 days in the land checking it out, coming back with their report. And because the people didn't go into the land and trust God, they ended up spending 40 years in the wilderness until that generation died out. Another thing is Israel, uh, Israelis, Hebrews consider 40 years a generation for, full, for a generation to rise up and completely die out. And that's what it was before the people were allowed to go into the promised land. The embalming of Jacob took 40 days. Three kings reigned for 40 years each. Saul, David, and Solomon, the first three kings, each reigned for 40 years. Elijah had a meal before he wandered off into the, the wilderness and ended up on Mount Horeb and spent 40 days in the wilderness, finally going into that cave where he finally hears God's voice as a soft blowing on the back of his neck, if you will, and goes out to meet his God. Now his flood lasted 40 days. Jonah's warning concerning the destruction of Nineveh was 40 days. Ezekiel laid on his right side for 40 days to bear the iniquity of Judea's sins. Jesus appeared for 40 days after the resurrection, before he ascended, and Jesus fasted and was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, and he spent 40 hours in the tomb between the crucifixion and the resurrection. See all these 40s? And if you think about every one of those, think about this idea of a time of trial, testing, initiation, preparation for rebirth. This is what's going on here. Jesus in the wilderness, this kenosis that Paul talks about, this emptying of himself. What he's really doing is moving into silence and solitude, moving into stillness, and also moving into the point of exhaustion. Let's take a look at what Mark says about this moment at Mark 1, starting at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, You are my beloved Son, and you I'm well pleased. Immediately the Spirit impelled him. That is a really almost violent verb. The Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels were ministering to him. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. And if you really translate that correctly, (laughs) the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is here. It's now. Those verbs mean already arrived and not necessarily out there still someplace. Repent and believe in the gospel. And you can see where the Catholic Church took the second half of that verse to apply it to Ash Wednesday. Repent. Change direction. Believe in this good news. Believe in what Jesus' message was all about. Now Matthew gives us a heck of a lot more detail in uh, chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. 
and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Here is the account of Jesus going out into the wilderness. And we can legitimately ask the question, Why the wilderness? Sometimes we call it the desert. Probably was desert, but it doesn't say that. It's the wilderness. It's the untamed, wild areas. It's the unfamiliar. It's the disturbing. It's the place that doesn't su- support you or sustain you in any way that you have become familiar with being supported and sustained, right? Why the suffering? Why the, the, the exhaustion? Is this all about punishment for sin? Jesus was without sin. Is Lent about punishment for us? We've sinned. But is that really what this is about? Is it about atonement? See, fasting and suffering and exhaustion are really only byproducts of a process here. A process that is a means to another end. It's not really about punishment coming from God. And it's not really about atonement in the sense of trying to change God's mind about us. It's something else entirely that Jesus is doing here. And we know that because he had this different relationship, the scriptures tell us, with God. We can imagine ourselves being punished. We can imagine ourselves having to atone. What was Jesus doing out there? It was something different. It was a process taking him someplace. Over the years, the church and the people have lost the meaning behind the symbolism of Lent behind what the wilderness experience was all about. And the people have lost it too. This idea of suffering and deprivation became an end in itself. It became just merely emulating the sufferings of Jesus. The same way that some people would keep themselves in constant pain, either with a salise, which was something that they wrap around tightly that would dig into the flesh, or flagellating themselves, whipping themselves. The, The suffering itself brought them into closer connection with Jesus. The Lent experience was becoming more and more of the same and missing what it was really about. This idea of simply depriving ourselves of giving up pleasures, like the candy bar of the kid, you know, or fasting as punishment or some sort of vicarious benefit, as if God would reimburse us or reward us for our Lenten sacrifice with some sort of blessing. What Jesus was doing, it seems to me, and I just put it into my mind's eye as I imagine him out there, and not just for 40 days. Remember, there are 18 unaccounted years for in Jesus' life. Paul spent 14 years between the Damascus experience and the beginning of his first missionary journey or thereabouts. It could have been a really long time. He was removing everything he knew as a human being, everything that he relied on. He was kind of going into sort of a a sensory deprivation, if you will. 
a letting go of familiar life, quieting all the noise, just removing everything that was familiar, that was that had become closed over on itself in his life, at home with his family, taking care of business, doing whatever he was doing in the Galilee, and going out and completely quieting and stripping all that away. It's like getting down to the bottom of the dog pile because whatever is left is going to be whatever is really true if we can see it that way. Henry Nouwen has a brilliant way of looking at the the wilderness experience of Jesus. Uh, If you ever want to read The Way of the Heart, he talks about it in there where he says, these three, and remember three is another symbolic number for the Jews. It, It represents perfection and completion. Three temptations. And the way he puts it is, it's the temptation to be relevant, to be powerful, and to be spectacular. What's more relevant than being able to make food out of stones? What's more powerful than to have control of all the world's kingdom? And what's more spectacular than throwing yourself off in a very public place to be borne up by angels to an adoring crowd? And if you think about it, it's the sum total of every one of our obsessive, compulsive desires that comes out of our own fears, that comes out of our brokenness as a child. To be relevant, to be powerful, to be spectacular, to be loved, to be accepted, to know that we can take care of ourselves, to be in control. All these things that animate us as human beings become the thing that we're clinging to, that we're relying on. That if we don't sell, if we don't let go of, we cannot take the first steps into following Jesus to kingdom. And Jesus was no exception. He was a human being. He had to do the same thing. His way of doing it was to go out into the wilderness and purge physically these things so that he could purge inwardly the emotional connection to these things and then come back and have something to offer his tribe, his community. But in our lives, what is true for us? What's real for us? Is it our jobs? Is it our career? a cause we have, our politics? Is it religion? Is it family? Is it our beliefs? What is it for us that defines us? What is it that we rely on that is limiting us and keeping us from seeing what is really there? Because when you're swimming in all of that, swimming in the totality of our lives, how hard is it for us to really see what is real and what is essential? What's life-giving and what's merely distraction? The beauty of Lent, if we actually participate in it, really participate in it, is that it's recognizing this 40-ness, this 40 time of stripping away everything that distracts from truth. It was originally a preparation for baptism. Doesn't that make a heck of a lot of sense? Preparation for the new life of coming up out of the waters, of resurrection, of rebirth, being born again, is what was understood to wait on the other side of this 40-ness on the other side of this kenosis, this emptying. This is what it's all about. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us. This is what the church recognized in the liturgy. But it devolved into symbolism, and so the stripping away just became a form of punishment, a penance, atonement, a, an expression of remorse, rather than this affirmative moving forward and letting go of everything that distracts us and keeps us from seeing what's right in front of us. I want to read you a 
a little piece by a, a writer that I, I just love. His name is uh, Parker Palmer. And this is called Withering into the Truth. You know, love that title? Withering into the Truth. Though leaves are many, the root is one. Through all the lying days of my youth, I swayed my leaves and flowers in the sun. Now may I wither into the truth. That's a poem by William Butler Yeats. Now he writes, In a few days I'll turn 78. When friends say they don't know what to give me for my birthday, I always respond with the same tired old joke that they've heard from me before, which causes them to sigh and roll their eyes and change the subject. Now here's a perk that comes with age. Repeat yourself so often that folk, folks think you're getting dotty when in fact you're fending off unwanted conversations. <laughs> Question, what do you give a man who has everything? Answer, penicillin. I don't need gifts of a material nature, but I do need to remember a few things I've learned during my nearly eight decades on earth. The Yeats poem at the head of this column names something I don't want to forget. Actively embracing aging gives me a chance to move beyond the lying days of my youth and begin to wither into the truth. If I resist the temptation to Botox, my withering, that is, my youthful lies weren't intentional. I just didn't know enough about myself, the world, and the relation of the two to tell the truth. So what I said on those subjects came from my ego, a notorious liar. Coming to terms with the sole truth of who I am, of my complex and often confusing mix of darkness and light, this has required my ego to shrivel up. Nothing shrivels a person better than age. That's what all those wrinkles are about. Whatever truthfulness I've achieved on this score comes not from a spiritual practice, but from having my ego so broken down and composted by life that eventually I had to yield and say, okay, I get it. I'm way less than perfect. I envy folks who come to personal truth via spiritual discipline. This is what we're talking about here. Lent is spiritual discipline. The 40 days of Jesus was spiritual discipline. All the 40s that we talked about are spiritual discipline. I envy folks who come to personal truth via spiritual discipline. I call them contemplatives by intention. Me? I'm a contemplative by catastrophe. (laughs) I love that. Contemplative by catastrophe. If we don't actively do the stripping, life will do the stripping for us. Eventually, old age and especially death strips everything that it means to be us, everything we think means to be us. And if we haven't deepened our sense of who we are, we will fear death. We will be terrified of death because everything that we think it means to be us ends at the headstone. But if we have done this work, if we have moved into our fortiness, if we have voluntarily stripped away, or if we have allowed life to do it and become aware of what's happening, then we get a sense of the deeper I, the deeper self that continues on. This is what the spiritual journey is about. Everything that he relied on as a young man, and think about it, as a writer, his whole career, he probably looks back a lot at a lot of that earlier writing and saying, Gee, what a bunch of junk, because it wasn't coming from this authentic place. It wasn't coming out of his silence. It wasn't coming out of his stillness. This certainty that he understood life, that he knew what it was that he was writing about, after all this withering, 
he realizes now what is left is what's really true. He's withering into truth. This is what Lent is an opportunity to do. It's almost a liturgical excuse for us to voluntarily, with intention, move into this withering process. Just let things go. Quiet things down. And start the process of getting further and further into what we're really all about, what this is all about. We need to stop seeing Lent as passive, as negative, as vicarious, as just taking away pleasure as some penance or punishment for sin, but now as a positive, affirmative action that we are going to take to move into greater silence, into greater simplicity, into stillness, an intentional, concentrated training period, awareness in God's presence. I love this idea of a a liturgical excuse to get her done, you know? (laughs) So how do we do it? How how are we supposed to do this? We're moving into Lent. Now, fasting can help. You know, it's the... Fasting gives you a physical reminder in your gut, right? A constant gnawing or, or something that's going on. It's a physical reminder of your intention to be present. Just like the church bell would call you to attention, call you to prayer, call you to service, right? Your own hunger pangs can do the same thing. Your own awareness of of your diet and what you are doing intentionally during the day can bring you back to that same place. You can have this daily commitment to mindfulness, of keeping your head where your feet are, of being more aware of where your thoughts are going, of having maybe morning quiet time, centering prayer time, If we really want to follow Jesus, we're going to need to use this excuse to go into an internal wilderness for 40 days. I put a handout in your your bulletins with mindfulness exercises, and we don't have time to go through them. But take a look at them, read them, and see if you can start practicing them. There's six of them there. Do one a day. Do one a week. Try something. Try some of your own. Read what's there. Come up with your own ideas. What is it that you can practice during the day that will keep your head where your feet are, that will keep the only thing that you're thinking about, the thing that you're actually doing, the conversation you're actually having? Practice that mindfulness, both online and offline. Online with mindfulness, offline with centering prayer and quiet time and meditation. The beautiful thing about the interior wilderness, we can do it in place. We can retreat in place. We don't have to leave our families and leave our jobs. All we have to do is leave our normal state of mind. Whatever that is that keeps us distracted and keeps us running and keeps us on the hamster wheel. If we can break through that and come to rest, retreat in place, now Lent is becoming useful for us. I love the word efficacious. It's becoming efficacious. It's taking us someplace. If you haven't heard the poet Rilke, um, you got to check out Rilke. There's so many great things. But what he says is, the only journey is the one within. This is the journey. This is why we're here. The rest of the stuff we do and what we build, that ends at the gravestone as well. 
This is what continues this interior journey. Jesus said the kingdom is within. Don't be looking out there. You're not going to find it out there. It's here. It's now. But you're never going to see that until you clear the decks, clear the space, clear the mechanism. And if we let it, Lent can help us quiet down. It can create that excuse for us to find new presence. And so the question is, as we are heading into in the next few days, Shrive Tuesday, Ash Wednesday, will you let Lent do its work with you? Can you make a commitment to put some of these things in place, to use this 40 days, 46 days, to find another way of being present, of doing what you do, and let this period, this run-up to Easter, wither you a bit, (laughs) in a good way, so that you can become contemplative by intention and not just catastrophe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for everything that the church gives us, all the tools the church gives us, the deep meaning and symbolism, the liturgy the church gives us. Thank you for it comes from deep within your heart. Help us to see past the mere ritual, the mere doings, to to the deeper symbolism underneath, the deeper connection that these things represent underneath. Help us to go there. Help us to use these tools that you have given us through our church, through our traditions, to find you in a deeper way. That's what we want to do, and that's what this is all about. Help us to find a place of commitment, a spiritual discipline within ourselves to try something this Lent and to see where it takes us. Father, thank you again for your love and for everything that you've showered upon us. Never let us forget. We can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's all stand.